following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Indeed, it is a great time of year to, to reflect on that day. To reflect on the day when God entered this world as a human being. Uh, it's an amazing story. We, we see it written by the gospel writers and Matthew and Luke. And as they articulate various events that occurred around that time. And as we carefully look at what they wrote, we find though that much has been embellished in the Christmas story. Added to it. Things that are assumed, right? Many of those additions uh, have found their way even in the Christmas carols that we sing together. In fact, several of these carols contain things that that may not have actually happened or things that we just aren't sure of or things that are not explicitly in the biblical account. So I thought we'd begin our time together this morning by doing a sort of a Christmas carol fact check. Look at a couple of them. Look at a line or two and, and see if you can spot the assumption or in some cases even an error in the Christmas carol. So if you're ready, here we go. First Christmas carol. This is one that taught to my children. It's the first one I taught all my kids. I love this one. But in this Christmas carol, away in a manger, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, ah, no crying he makes. Anything here that may not exactly fit the Christmas story? There's lots of animals. Every nativity scene has animals in it, right? But that's really an assumption. The Bible doesn't say either way. Personally, if I were Mary or Joseph, and I just laid my newborn in a feeding trough, I, I wouldn't have animals around that might um, be interested or hungry. <laughs> Would you? Come on. Or a Bible never says that Jesus didn't cry. Um, be nice. Most babies cry when they're hungry. But Okay, so here's a line from among the most famous. Tim Adams called it the most famous Christmas carol. Hark the herald angels sing. And I will not make a joke about Harold the angel because that one bombed last week. So... <laughs> But the song begins, hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Anything here that may not be exactly right. Luke mentions the angels that they spoke, they said, they didn't sing necessarily. But I guess spoke doesn't really rhyme with king, so that's what we have. But anyway, here's another very famous one. In fact, the title, We Three Kings of Orion are, Bearing Gifts We Traverse Afar. Any potential issue here with this one? Yeah, we don't know if there were three. There may have been three, but we don't know if there were three. Could have been two. There there could have been 20. And the Bible calls them magi, not kings. That tradition was added later. Okay, here's one from... This is my favorite Christmas carol. So there's nothing sacred here. We're looking at them all. Oh, holy night. I love this song. But in it, there's a line that says, So led by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here came the wise men from Orient land. The king of kings lay thus... In lowly manger. All right, anything here? Where does the scripture say the wise men came and saw Jesus? All right, it's a house, right? He, they weren't at the manger scene. So you're going to have to go through your neighborhood, go to all your neighbors and tell me these guys weren't here. I hate to tell you. Um, no, don't do that. It's, it's, it's okay. The same, we have the same issue in I wonder as I wander. When Mary birthed Jesus, t'was in a cow's stall with wise men and farmers and shepherds and all. That stall's getting pretty crowded. 
That poor little drummer boy, he's outside. Can I come in? I've got something I want to play. You know, there were shepherds there. Scriptures do say that. But uh, again, the wise men were not. They came later. And we don't know about the farmers. The Bible doesn't say anything about farmers showing up. So, and I'm not trying to pick on our beloved Christmas carols. I, you know, don't stop singing and don't start, oh man, there's something wrong in this. I can't sing it. No, that's not the intent here at all. But I just wanted to show you how some traditions have crept into the songs that we sing. They've crept into our Christmas cards, into, into Christmas movies, into uh, Christmas plays that we see. Many, many legends have become attached to the birth of Christ. And so that's something that we've seen often in many cases. But these many errors or misconceptions that have made their way into the Christmas story, there's probably none that occur more often than that surrounding the wise men. So this morning, I want to take us back to that part of the story, Matthew chapter 2. Not just so we get the facts right, but more importantly, that we'd understand why Matthew included that account in the Christmas story, if you will, in the time when Jesus came to earth and became a human being. So if you're not there yet, please turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2. You know, it's interesting to me, as we read did you, uh, the first, the last part of Matthew chapter 1 earlier, did you notice how much Matthew actually said about the birth? Hardly anything at all. In fact, the very last line of chapter 1, right, he simply says that she gave birth to a son and he called his name, Joseph called his name Jesus. That's it. That's all we have from his birth. That's all that we are given in regards to that. Matthew didn't include anything else. No manger, no shepherds, no flocks, no angels, nothing. Just that he was born and what his name was. Instead, Matthew focuses on an event which took some place sometime later on. Uh, some foreigners who came to see Jesus. And my question is, why did Matthew do that? Why did he give so little attention to the momentous occasion of Christ's birth and so much attention to these mysterious wise men, these magi. I mean, you ever wonder that? Indeed, I, I wonder as I wonder as I think about <laughs> that particular thing. The answer to these questions, though, strikes at the very heart of the Christmas story itself. And even the whole purpose for Jesus coming to this world. And so let's take another look at this most famous of visits the coming of the Magi. And first, we're going to look at the story as a whole, and then we're going to talk about its significance. Look first at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, where after Matthew tells of the birth of Jesus, he then says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, let's stop there. Now, we aren't told, again, exactly when the Magi show up, but we know for sure it was not on the day of Christ's birth. We find out later in verse 11 that they came to a house. And we can be fairly certain that it was at least 40 days after his birth, because Luke 2.22 tells us that after the days of purification, which were 40 days after you'd given birth to your firstborn son, you'd wait 40 days, you'd come to the temple, give an offering. And we learn in Luke 2 that they came, gave an offering of turtle doves and two turtle doves and two pigeons instead of the normal offering of a lamb. And that was something you would offer if you didn't have enough money. And so that tells us that 
if, if the wise men had come already from the gifts they had been given, Joseph probably would have been able to go out and buy a lamb. So we know at least it was 40 days after. And then we get even better indication of how long from Matthew 2, verse 16, when that tragic event when Herod had all the boys up to two years old killed. And he had determined that age how? Remember, he determined it from when the wise men first saw the star. And so it is likely uh, the time that he ascertained from them and probably added at least six months to that. So it's, it's very likely the Magi probably did not show up perhaps maybe 12 months or even more after Jesus was born. Notice in verse 1, Matthew indicates that the wise men came in the days of King Herod. Extra-biblical records show that, uh, from Josephus and others, show that Herod was appointed by the Roman Senate as the king of Judea in 40 B.C. And not long after that, Judea was invaded by the Parthians. They were um, from the region in ancient Babylon, and they had come and attacked. They were always uh, fighting with Rome, and a lot of the battles took place in the border area of Judah and the surrounding areas there. And so one such attack took place. Herod fled to Rome, procured an army, brought them back, went on to defeat the Parthenians and secured his throne in 37 B.C. And so we see Herod, who was an able politician. He was a capable builder. He built a number of places all around the region of Israel, in particular several palaces. If you've been to Masada, perhaps you've seen one of them that was actually built on the side of the cliff. It's quite impressive. He also was the one who initiated the temple remodel in 19 BC and the amazing additions that were made to that temple and everything that was repaired there. According to Josephus, Herod's reign lasted about 37 years until he died. And we can pinpoint his death to sometime early in 4 BC because Josephus mentions that right after his death, there was a lunar eclipse. And astronomers have identified such an eclipse taking place in March in the year 4 B.C. And in addition to that, there have been coins that have been discovered dated to 4 B.C. And they have a stamp of Herod's son on them. And knowing Herod, that's not something he would have allowed until he was gone. And so we can be pretty confident his death being in 4 B.C. And therefore the wise men came sometime before that. These men that did come again, they were referred to as wise men. They came to Jerusalem and... There's not much we can glean from the biblical record about these guys. We're not told much about them. Matthew only mentions they are foreigners from the east. Uh, they probably have some amount of means as they give very valuable gifts to Jesus. And also, too, that there was more than one. It's magi there is plural. But other than that, we don't have much else about them. We don't know a lot about them at all. Uh, outside the biblical record, the first mention of the magi is from Greek historian Herodotus. In uh, about 400 years before Jesus, he indicated this group, this tribe, uh, the, the Magi were a tribe from the Medes, originating back in the 7th century, living in ancient Babylon area. These guys were educated in various aspects of science and religion and history and the occult. And apparently when the Chaldeans came to power under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Magi served as his advisors. We know them, a uh, more popular term, the wise men. Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. Several places in the book of Daniel. In the Greek translation, they are referred to as Magi. In fact, in Daniel 9:11, it says that Daniel was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar as the chief of the Magi. And so it's possible that these Magi came to Jerusalem that they were likely descendants from that group of wise men from Daniel's day and even before. 
And there's so many theories about these guys that have come up over the years, right? That they are tradition, later later tradition tells us they were uh, three kings, one that came from India, one from Greece, one from Egypt, that uh, their names were Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar. And perhaps there was even a fourth, Artaban, if you saw that movie, The Fourth Magi, you know, they made a pretty good case, uh, Martin Sheen there. But anyway, we don't know for sure. Um, that was a joke. All right. Uh, you can also, don't know if you heard about this, there's the Shrine of the Three Kings in Cologne, Germany. Any of you heard of that? Apparently, the bones of the three magi were obtained by Constantine's mother as religious relics. And then they got passed down through history. They ended up in the, uh, in the hands of an archbishop from Cologne, Germany. And so they made this nice, ornate, golden box. They put some crowns on it. And apparently the bones of the three magi are in there. So if you want to see them and say hi to them someday, just head on over to Germany. I'm digressing, aren't I? Um, but these magi who showed up to Jerusalem asking around for the king of the Jews... And they, apparently when they came, they were asking everybody, where's the king of the Jews? The, the tense of the verb there indicates this was something they were repeatedly going around. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Where is he? He's born, been born king of the Jews. We've come to worship him. They were asking many, many people around. And they indicate, as they were asking, that they saw his star. That star that they saw when they came from the east. And if you thought there were a number of theories regarding the Magi, you haven't seen anything yet. There are so many ideas and thoughts about what that star was. Some say it was simply a prominent star that appeared in the night sky that got their attention. Others say that it was actually a supernova, an exploding star. In fact, I read something that's not confirmed, but I read that uh, some ancient astronomers in China apparently reported seeing a supernova in early 5 B.C., Others say that it may have been a comet, Halley's Comet being the most likely, but that traveled by the earth in 12 BC. Some say it was a meteor. Some even say it was the guiding star within their hearts, which led them to the manger, to the house, actually. You don't buy that one, huh? But among the more popular theories among today's astronomers is one that Kepler came up with several hundred, <clears throat> several hundred years ago, that the star was actually an event that uh, takes place every 794 years. And that is when the planet Jupiter and the planet Saturn come in close proximity to one another. In fact, several years ago, I went to a planetarium and they kind of showed all this. And, you know, when they came together, there was this big bright flash. And I got that doesn't normally happen, does it? But anyway, I could go on and go on. So many theories. But, you know, I think the explanation that runs closest to what we see in the biblical text is that this star was miraculously placed there by God as a sign. Right? You see later in verse 9, where it talks about the star in its rising, and then it moves and goes from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and stops over a house. Now, I've only taken one class in astronomy, but, but I don't think stars normally do that. Actual stars sit there in the sky, so to speak, at least from our vantage point. And if it was some real astronomical phenomena that took place, a bright light high in the sky like a star, how would you be able to tell the exact house that it was standing over anyway? No, its presence was miraculous. Many think even it could have been God's Shekinah glory. Remember that bright glory that was revealed in the wilderness as God led the people to the land of promise? And that it was that same glory that now led these men to the same land of promise in order to see the child of promise. Looking back at verse 2, 
we see that these magi, prompted by this miraculous sign, they, if they did come from the region of ancient Babylon, they would have been traveling then at least 600 miles to get to Jerusalem. And they were looking for, again, the king of the Jews. And obviously they did not mean Herod, but the king of the Jews was the object of their pursuit, the Messiah from the line of David. We see that from the context and what happens later, just a moment after this. But this brings up to me a more profound question. And that is, how did these strangers from the east, these Gentiles from a distant land, how did they know to connect that sign, that star, with the birth of the Messiah? How in the world did they figure that out? What led them to that understanding? Prophecies of the Messiah were indeed no secret in the ancient Near East. In fact, Daniel, who prophesied about the Messiah, lived outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. Uh, Jeremiah, another prophet who spoke of future prophecies, he was not always living in the region of Israel. And if these magi did descend from Babylon's wise men, it would be no stretch of the imagination to consider that they probably had heard of Nebuchadnezzar's chief of the magi, Daniel, and perhaps even had seen some of his writings. The more astute among them may have been able to deduce even when or about when the Messiah was to come from Daniel 9, 25. They may also have been familiar with the messianic passage in Numbers 24, 17, which says a star shall come from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. These are possible or plausible. Seem logical that that might be the case. But notice later in verse 12, how is it that God directs them That's the end of the story. How does he direct these wise men as they're leaving town? They'd seen Jesus, they worship him, and God warns them in a dream, right, not to go back to Herod. So they ended up taking another route out of town. You know, I think just as he told them how to leave the country is how he told them to come. I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to assume that God probably revealed himself in a similar way when they were in their own land that a Messiah was coming, that there would be a sign, and that when that sign exists, start your journey. Again, the text doesn't say that, but I think it would not be far to assume that. And notice too in verse 2 that the phrase in the east, actually in the manner that it is given in the Greek, would probably be better translated in its rising or when it rose, as the ESV says. So this idea is when the star came up, they were on the move and they left for Jerusalem. The most important thing from all of this, Matthew notes here in chapter 2, despite all the questions and the issues and things surrounding the Magi, the star, and all those, the main thing Matthew directs our attention to is these guys show up in Jerusalem, they're looking for the king, and they're looking all around for him. As I mentioned earlier, they're asking person after person, hey, have you seen the king of the Jews? Where's he been born? We've come to worship him. Have you seen him? Have you seen Do you know where he is? They're looking around town. And when Herod hears about this, verse 3, he hears about these prominent strangers who've come and they're asking about the king of the Jews. It says in verse 3 that he became troubled. That word actually literally means to, to stir up a liquid. He became stirred up, agitated, disturbed. One reason that some propose that he was disturbed is that these magi who came from the east, perhaps from Parthian, the region of the Parthians, may have brought some Parthian soldiers with them as protection, uh, probably a large entourage that had come for that long distance. And Herod might have been wondering if the Parthians were getting ready to stage another attack. But I think we know what was foremost on his mind, don't we? Right? Herod was paranoid about his throne. 
controlling his throne. In fact, over the course of his reign, he had executed a brother-in-law, one of his wives, her mother, her grandfather, and then around 8 BC, two of his own sons because he was suspicious about their threats. And then right before his death, he ordered the execution of a third son. I mean, Herod was quite the family man. If you know Queen Athaliah's story, she would have been very proud of him. It's reported that Augustus actually came up with a pun regarding Herod, where he played off of two words in Greek for pig and son. Pig is the word hus and uh, son is huios. And he said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. But Herod was agitated. He perceived a threat to his throne. And we know where that led him as later Matthew describes the barbaric butcher of all the little boys in Bethlehem. And because Herod was troubled, verse 3 says that all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Well, yeah, they know what this guy's capable of. Leon Morris, New Testament scholar, said when Herod the Great trembled, the whole city shook. So Herod, he wants more information about what's going on. So if you look at verse 4, let's read there, where it says, Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that's Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Stop there. Now, the chief priests that are mentioned here are uh, the current high priest, as well as former high priests. They're also the temple guard and other prominent priests. And these guys really were more political than pious. The scribes that are mentioned here were the biblical scholars from the group that we know of as the Pharisees. And so Herod, what he does is he essentially gathers the politicians and the theologians together. And he asks them, so where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Obviously, he doesn't read his Bible very much. They respond without much hesitation in Bethlehem of Judea. And they note Judea, not only from Micah's text, but also to make sure they distinguish it from there's a Bethlehem in the region of Galilee. So they say in Bethlehem of Judea. And these guys did not pull that town out of the air, right? They got it from a prophecy, a well-known prophecy, one that we should be familiar with, right? Our beloved prophet Micah, Micah 5.2. He predicted this some 700 years earlier. And Matthew also adds here in verse 6, that this king would be very different from the selfish and cruel king Herod, for this king would be a shepherd over his people. And notice here, I find it interesting, these religious leaders, how they left out kind of a very important phrase. They stopped right before what Micah said about the identity of this Messiah when he said that the Messiah would be from eternity past, from the days long ago. Just a little slight oversight, I guess. They, they didn't seem to care too much about that. But in any event, it doesn't appear that, that Herod had yet seen the Magi. Right? We get from the text, verse 2, they'd come to Jerusalem looking for him. Verse 3, that Herod heard about what they were asking for, who they were asking for. And verse 4, he gathers the scribes and, and the, uh, the priests together to ask about and get more information. But then in verse 7 is when he actually meets these Magi. Notice there where he says, Then... Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and carefully search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. I hate that line. Right? Herod calls these guys secret meeting this time. The last one was a little more public. He does so because he wants information. 
But he does this in very interesting way. Notice when they come and show up, he feigns his interest in something that they would be interested in, right? Because he asks them about the star. So he tell me about this star you saw. When did you see it? He doesn't really care at all about astronomy, does he? He just wants to know when did it appear? When did these guys come? Because how old is this kid? Because I'm going to take him out. I just want to worship the child too. And apparently this... His deception worked. The wise men were none the wiser. For Herod's deception, he doesn't send any escort with him, does he? In fact, I think that fact that he says, I want to worship him too, really. Oh, well, we do too. We'll let you know as soon as we find him. And so off they go. In verse 9, we see them take their leave of Herod as they say, as it says, After hearing the king, they went on their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So apparently the star had gone dark. Verse 9 indicates it appears again. Again, that phrase in the east is literally in its rising or when it rose. The star not only rises up, right? But again, it goes out of Jerusalem, takes the six-mile journey south, stops at a particular house in Bethlehem, and there remains. Star could not have been too high up in the sky because, again, it guides us to the very house, guides them to the very house where Jesus is. It's kind of like a GPS system, like the first GPS system ever made. I like what Jack Hughes calls it, the God-positioning star. I that was clever. But this star is probably the exact same one, or the same light that they saw before, because it's the same word star. And also, notice their excitement when they see it, because they know this star's appeared. This is it. This is the one that we saw earlier. This is the one that's going to take us to the king. So they're very excited. Star takes them to the house. Again, notice they weren't at a manger. They open the door, and when they see Jesus, what do they do? <laughs> they hit the dirt immediately. It's quite a scene. Then, of course, we have those well-known gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh that they presented. We're not told here how many there were. Could have been two or three. Some say 12. We don't know for sure. But at any rate, what they had traveled for so long and so far to see, they finally saw. And their response is wonderful. You know, much has been said about the significance of their gifts. Indeed, they were all highly valuable. Gold was a precious commodity. It was used for a number of things, from utensils to statues to buildings. Frankincense uh, is derived from a word meaning white, which is the color of the extract that comes out of a certain tree that's grown in Arabia, South Arabia, or Northeast Africa. It's used as an incense. And even nowadays, those of you who are into those uh, special oils, you know, it actually has some healing properties. Myrrh, which is a valuable perfume, was reused in a variety of applications. And again, these were all very costly and, and valuable, and they would have been extremely useful for these guys in taking this long journey through several regions to use as currency. These things would also have been a great financial help to the needs of Joseph and his family. But is that the the only reason that they offered these gifts? If it was just money or financial support that they wanted to provide, they could have just given gold, right? Or just frankincense 
or just myrrh, but they gave them all three of these specific gifts presented to Jesus. You know, I don't think he had a wallet or anything like that. So there was something more than just providing a means of support. Gold was often associated with royalty. Frankincense was used specifically in the worship of God in the temple through the offerings and the incense being burnt. Myrrh was often used for burial. In fact, Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds of the stuff to put on the body of Jesus when it was in the tomb. And so many see then the gold as symbolic of Jesus as king, the frankincense reminding of his deity, and the myrrh as a foreshadowing of his death. Indeed, that's how John Hopkins, who wrote We Three Kings, that was the view he took when he wrote that song. You remember, gold I bring to crown him again. Incense owns a deity nigh. Myrrh's bitter perfume breathes of life of gathering gloom. So now that song's redeemed. You can sing that one now again. He got that one right. But So after participating then in this first Christian worship service, really, these magi had seen and come to the end of their journey, the purpose for which they had come, able to worship the king. And then God, in verse 12, warns them, don't go back to Herod, but go. So they went home by another way outside. They took another route out of Bethlehem. That's the story. That's the one that we've read and been told time and again. It's a story that, again, brings so many questions about the Magi and the star and the gifts and Herod. And and many people have exerted a lot of effort trying to figure those things out. You wouldn't believe how much stuff has been written. It's amazing. And it seems that so many get caught up in these questions and trying to figure them out that they miss the whole point of the story. That they they miss the, the whole reason that Matthew wrote it for us. If he had intended for us to know more about the Magi, know more about the star, to know more about these other things, he would have written it, right? His focus wasn't on that. His focus was on something more important. I think Matthew intentionally left those details out because he wanted us to focus on the main thing, the one thing that these Magi came to do. And what was that? They came to worship this king, right? That's what they were saying all over Jerusalem. Where is he? Where is he? We come to worship him. That's the whole point. That word worship is repeated three times in this text, verses 2 and 8 and 11. And when the Magi, when they arrive at the house, remember they see Jesus with his mother. They don't present any formal greeting. They don't get, you know, put their stuff down in the living room and get settled. They don't even ask for something to drink. What is it they do immediately when they open the door and see him? Boom, right? They're down on the ground to worship. It's amazing, their response. And their worship, you know, some I read said, well, it was really, a, it's a courtesy. You know, you, you pay respects to a king and you come and do homage. And this was kind of more uh, an obli- obligatory thing. Or this was the respect being uh, paid by dignitaries who would travel to this foreign land. And, you know, I don't think that's it, do you? I think there's a little bit more here going on. If that was it, if they were just traveling through and had heard about a king being born and and then come through and but then they're asking in Jerusalem, where is he's been born king of the Jews? And everyone's going, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think they would have been too impressed. They probably would have said, you know, nobody knows who this guy is. Let's go. He's not that important. But they came to worship Jesus. They came to worship God. Matthew began his gospel by giving Jesus' genealogy. And he began with David. In order to make it clear that Jesus 
was the rightful king. And then he gives us chapter 2 and this account in chapter 2 in order to show us that Jesus is being honored as the rightful king. That's what it's all about. Beloved, that is the true meaning of Christmas. That is what we celebrate. He is what we celebrate, just as those magi did. We have come to worship him, right? Matthew gives us this wonderful account of the wise men to direct us to do that, to be an example to us. And so I would ask you, take this moment and think about what is it that your Christmas is really centered upon? Is it worship of Christ or is it something else? The gifts you're giving or receiving, the, the remote control car that you might get, the meals, the visiting, the family, the traveling, the memories of past Christmases, the decorations, the lights, the making of cookies. I mean, are these what receive their primary attention? Not to say those are unimportant or not fun, but where are you focused on? Those visiting your home this holiday season and where you live and as they look around at the decorations and maybe hear what you're talking about watching what you do listening to whatever music you have on would they say where is he who's been born king of the jews no really where is he i don't see him would that question about you continue through the rest of the year as well would people ask by seeing what you say what you do where is jesus in your life is he really your king Is he your savior? I think these wise men prompt a very important question for us. Does your life reflect a pursuit of the king? A lifelong quest to seek him. A passion to know him. A desire to follow him. These magi remind us that this pursuit of Jesus is a joyful one. Remember how, verse 10, how excited they got when they saw the star? guys there it is the star we're gonna see the king let's go i mean that's the the text where they were exceedingly full of joy they were rejoicing they were ecstatic and it's that joy that permeates the christmas story isn't it the angels shepherds mary looking at these things in wonder these magi coming to worship the king Again, it brings a question, does your worship of Jesus have that sort of excitement? Does knowing that Jesus came, he came, God came to be a human being. Imagine the angels looking at all of that. They must have been blown away because they knew exactly who was in that manger. Sometimes I think we forget knowing that, that he became a man, a human being, And what he went through and what he suffered and what he was willing to do to serve humanity in obedience to the Father. The Magi didn't know any of that. They just knew the the king had come and they worshipped him in joy just from that information. How much more so should we not be joyful about his coming? I must say, honestly, if, if there is little joy in your worship of Jesus, then I would challenge you to consider really then what is the real object of your worship because it isn't him you know another thing these magi remind us of is that worship is not only joyful but it's sacrificial right we see that very clearly in these valuable gifts and possessions that they gave to jesus things of great value but but it wasn't just the money right they gave of their time their energy their effort it took them several months 
They came from the region of Babylon to get to Bethlehem. Their talents, they risked their well-being to go on this long journey. They risked their reputation to seek out this little child and then bow down before him in humility and worship him. They gave of themselves sacrificially. Again, does that characterize your worship? You know so much more than these guys. And who that little child they were worshiping really is. Giving is a natural expression of worship. Giving is a natural expression of gratitude. Giving is a natural expression of understanding who it is that we serve. Giving is not something that's obligatory, but it is something that is, again, natural. It comes from a heart that understands who God is. It is a part of worship. I'm so thankful for these wise men. <laughs> these Gentiles. They show us what true worship really looks like. It's humble. It's focused. It's joyful. It's committed. It's sacrificial. What an example for us. Amen? The question arises if if Matthew's only point in telling us the story of the Magi, if his only point was to show that King Jesus is worthy of worship, then why didn't he just tell what Luke told about? Right? We see all of that the day of his birth, don't we? We see the, the angels who declare with great joy that they had been born. We see the shepherds rushing to the manger. We see the, the awe, the worship that's happening there. Why didn't Matthew just... Tell about that. I mean, he told a number of other stories that were similar in Luke as well. Why ignore that? And instead, describe some events that took place many months later. Well, I think this is to remind us of something. That some may respond to Christ in worship, but others will respond in opposition. Some will show adoration. Others will show apathy and abhorrence. We see apathy in the story part of the religious leaders. I mean, think about this. If, if you've been waiting your whole life for the Messiah, you knew about him, you even knew where he was going to be born. And these guys, these strangers, come from a distant land. They're all over Jerusalem asking about him. Uh, they're clearly not from around here, right? And they're making this big stir about it. Wouldn't you make the, the measly six-mile journey south just to see if there's anything to it? But these guys apparently don't seem to lift a finger. They had the truth. They studied the truth. They grew up with the truth. They could take Herod at the drop of a hat to the very passage that described the location of his birth. And yet they seem to care less about what was actually going on. You know, as I thought about it, if anything exemplifies our culture, it's these guys. Their apathy, their indifference. This nation has been surrounded by... Speaking of Jesus, right? Just just drive around the neighborhoods in Los Angeles. We see nativity scenes at some places, right? You may even see, I've seen signs that have Jesus in lights or a cross that's lit up. We hear Christmas carols. We hear them in movies and on the radio, even secular stations. My wife had attended an event earlier this week and they were singing Christmas carols. It wasn't a Christian gathering. It's not like Jesus is hidden right now. It's not like nobody has seen him or heard about him. And yet how many see him? How many hear him? How many even maybe have somebody come and tell them about Jesus? And yet they shrug their shoulders and move on. Those of you on the evangelism team, Saturday nights, how many people do you see just go by? Ignore you. I've been out there handing out tracts and a number of people just 
you know, they're not mean, not hostile. They're just, no, not interested. Not interested. Maybe some of you here have that same mindset, that same mentality that you hear about Christ. You've heard about him today even. But you remain unmoved towards him. You can take him or leave him. Maybe some of you have thought, you know, I'm nothing against Jesus. I I like his teachings. I, I like what he's done. He's a good guy, but I don't see any reason to really need to follow him. I won't speak bad of him or anything, but I don't see a need to worship him. And friend, if that is you, or if that is what the actions in your life show that you are, let me remind you of something, that ignoring or dismissing Christ is just as rebellious and evil an act as cursing him, as shaking your fist at him. It's just as disrespectful. It's just as dishonoring. This is the Lord of the universe. God will judge those who ignore just as much as those who oppose. God made all of us, didn't he? We're all accountable to him. And he sent Jesus. He sent his own son, God the son, in human flesh to offer a way for you to be forgiven and have a relationship with God. If you would confess those sins, put your trust in him, desire to turn from those sins and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. <laughs> what a wonderful truth. So don't tell Jesus to talk to the hand. Don't give him lip service. Believe in him. Trust in him. Follow him. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you, don't be discouraged by those who seem indifferent to Jesus. When you talk to them about him, I was very indifferent, even though I grew up, had grown up in the church. I went from indifference to hostility, but God finally got through. Keep praying and keep proclaiming. Amen. God will do the work. Looking back at Matthew, Matthew shows us that not only will opposition to Christ come in the form of apathy, but also with abhorrence. There will be those who are openly hostile to Christ. And who do we see that in the Christmas account here? Herod, right? You talk about hostility. Though he feigned interest in doing homage to Christ, his motives were quite the opposite, weren't they? In fact, later in the story, we didn't read it, but I'm sure you know the the account. He went on to order the slaughter of all the little boys in Bethlehem who were under the age of two. And why did he do that? Just to get at Jesus. This was not just the reaction of some king who felt that his throne was being threatened. For you see, at the end of the day, do you know what this reminds us of? Herod's response and what happened? This reminds us that we are in a war. There's a cosmic war going on. A war between God and his people, the evil one. We don't live in some Hallmark movie. (laughs) The Christmas story is not some syrupy account. We do have the the joyous birth. We we do have the angels and the shepherds and later the magi worshiping young Jesus. But let Herod's response remind you that we're in an ongoing war. We, We have those wonderful things at Christmas, but do you realize as part of the story, we also have toddlers being hewn in half. Babies ripped from their mothers and bludgeoned to death. Children speared in their beds. Matthew included that here. 
He's telling us very clearly, Satan will not stop at anything to wipe out the son or his people. He will slaughter babies if he has to. Satan is not going to go down quietly, right? He tried to destroy the Messiah when he was little, went after him his whole life, went after him again, and finally thought he'd won through Judas's betrayal, right? But we know different. That perceived victory was rather short-lived because Christ's death on the cross, through that death, Jesus defeated death when he was risen from the dead. When our sin was laid upon him on the cross, he conquered sin. And when it seemed that, that Satan had the upper hand, it was actually he was crushed by Christ's hand, or more specifically his foot. And he defeated him at the cross. But So that, does that mean Satan gave up then? Tried to get him when he's little. Thought I had him when he's older, but that didn't work out so so well. I'm just forget it. I'm done. Is that what Satan did? No. The war rages on. The war rages on. This is not peacetime, brothers and sisters. The battle is not over. Satan will not show any mercy or any kindness. He will not give any quarter. And I think Matthew is reminding us of that. That we have a war. The king has come and the enemies of the king are not going down quietly. And so don't be dis- dis- surprised if, if you experience opposition or persecution or trials or temptations or even hostility. Continue to live for the king. Continue to proclaim the greatness of the king and what he's done. And as you press on, don't forget... One more important thing Matthew shows us here in this account, and that is that God's in control. He secured the victory. Nothing happens outside of his watchful eye or his powerful hand. Right? God led the wise men to Jesus. God God revealed to them where he was born. God warned them not to go back to Herod. And God guided Joseph a little later to take Jesus out of Judah. God has things under control. And he continued throughout the life of Christ to bring about the mission for which Jesus came. And no act of nature, no man, no demon, not even Satan himself could stop God's plan. I'm encouraged by that. So in the midst of the indifference to Christ, in the midst of the hostility towards him and perhaps then directed towards you, in the midst of Satan's attack, when the, when the world just doesn't seem to be going as you would hope it would go. I mean, think about those parents, those mothers and fathers in Bethlehem that night. What, the Messiah is here? He's come? God's with us? Yeah, right. I just lost my baby tonight. Where's God? That reminds us again that we're in a war. There will be many trials. There will be many difficulties. But let the Magi's visit remind you of this, that the great king has come. That he's worthy of all of our joyful and and sacrificial and, and our total worship. And that he will return, as Brother Jim mentioned a moment ago, and even as we sang about and heard sung, that Jesus is going to bring a final end to this war. And he's going to establish his kingdom and we will be with him forever. That is what we're to remind ourselves of communion when we take communion and participate in it together until the Lord comes to 
proclaim his death until he comes. So Christmas is a time to proclaim his birth and his death till he comes. And knowing all that that means for us. Praise God for these magi. I want you to take a moment before I pray and just reflect on these these things that we've seen here. Reflect on the attitude of worship that these men had. The fact that we're in a war. And all the other things, the joy that surrounds Christmas, but also the reality. So take a moment, reflect on that, and then I'll pray. Oh Lord, you've given us just an amazing account here of the wise men that you led to your son. And just their example to us of their worship, their honor, their their reverence, their joy, sacrifice, uh, humility. Lord, thank you for them. They're their example to us, how they encourage us. And, and also, Lord, too, we see the reminder from your word that even in the midst of this joyous celebration of Christ's coming, that, that this world and the evil one will not stop seeking to stamp out his message, seeking to undermine his people and to distract them, to distract us. Lord, we thank you that you also remind us that you're in control. Lord, nothing happens outside of your hand. And as we celebrate Christmas together this year, God, bring this message to our mind and hearts and and Lord, give opportunity, open the door for us to proclaim the the goodness of our Savior and and Lord, to trust in the message of the gospel and that your, your word will not go forth void. I pray for any here, God, who, Lord, are indifferent to Jesus, who are maybe perhaps even hostile to him in their hearts or, Lord, that just aren't genuinely worshipers of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would grant them understanding. They would see who Jesus really is and what his death means and that they would desire to seek his forgiveness, to follow him. Lord, thank you again. Thank you. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Let me close our time with these words from Daniel that also express what Christmas is all about. Daniel seven thirteen, where he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Like the Magi. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen.